and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. I'll come out when I'm ready. Don't lock the door. In this episode, we'll be talking about sexual health and safer sex practices, including testing. However, it is important to note that neither myself nor my co-hosts are licensed sexual health therapists or medical practitioners. As such, if you have any questions or concerns about your personal sexual health, we encourage you to consult with a medical professional or your local Planned Parenthood. Hi Sebastian, where are you? I'm in bed, Claire, where are you? I'm in bed with you. That sounds dirty. We're in the same bed together. Fully clothed. Or are we? No, but this is actually where we recorded our first bunch of episodes. So this is really nice to be back. Yeah, we haven't Thank recorded you for one here. Me. That's always a pleasure. And today we're reading chapter 13 of The Ethical Slut, which is called Keeping Sex Safe. What did you think of the chapter? thought it was a good chapter. It's yeah. an important chapter. It's Probably, a big chapter. It's a big chapter. It probably could have come earlier. <laughs> Phrasing. Pun. <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite a large chapter. So actually what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing this a little bit different for our listeners. We're going to be taking one section and another section and bouncing it between the two of us. So I've only done half the research and you've only done half the research. We have all both read it and I'm sure we'll both talk about it. But we sort of prioritise different sections just because there's a lot to talk about. So in the very beginning, they actually make an important uh, amendment, I think. So even though the chapter is called Keeping Sex Safe... They actually immediately ref- like changed that to safer, right? So safe sex was, it has been like in parlance since, well, here in the US since the 80s, I think, around the, the AIDS outbreak. Is that right? That sounds right to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in the UK, it's actually been in use since the 30s when safe sex referred to separate beds. Um, but obviously no sexual uh, contact, no, no sex is completely safe. Um, so changing this to safer sex, I think is a really important amendment. And I, I liked that they did that the very first line in this is, is super important. So it's not really about making it safe 100%. It's about making it safer. It's about risk reduction, not risk elimination. So it's, the term that I've always heard is like risk management or risk mitigation mm-hmm. regards to sex. So they they liken it in this part in this part of the chapter to defensive driving. Yes, a drunk could kill you at any time when you are cruising down the highway, and most of us take our best shot at safety and go on driving. There are ways of to have hot, satisfying sex without performing the erotic equivalent of skydiving with a faulty parachute. Definitely, um, I'm actually going to read one sen- one sentence. Wow, one sentence that they highlighted here, which sums it up. Given that sex is never completely safe, ethical sluts put time, effort, and commitment into getting as much sex as they want at the least risk possible. And if anyone wants to read any more about the why we've moved from the term safe sex to safer sex, I'll put a link in the show notes from Planned Parenthood, who do quite a good job of summarizing. Yes, they do. Can okay. I tell you one line in here that was funny before we dive into things? Yeah, sure. Um, they In this, they just start highlighting some general resources and stuff, but there's a line, we don't think you need to cover every portion of your anatomy with latex before you touch another <laughs> human being. And I wrote in the in the, in the the margins there, unless you want to. Yeah, that's the whole kink, isn't it? That's the whole, like thing. whole thing. It's not for me, but, you know, don't don't discount that. You may not need to do that, but do hey, it if you want. Don't kink shame anyone, man. Don't kink shame. <laughs> unless kink shaming is my kink. 
<laughs> All right. Do you want to kick, kick it off and tell me about barriers? Yes. Let's talk about barriers. Um, in this case, they refer to them as the rubber or nitrile or polyurethane or fence. Um, so barriers, the one that most people would think of come to mind automatically is probably the male condom, um, which is probably the most commonly used um, sort of general contraceptive and STD prevention, safer sex method for a lot of people. Um, and in doing some research on this, uh, one thing I learned is that part of the reason for that is that they're much easier to get approved and much cheaper to make than other barriers, especially like female condoms or like medications. I've just realized that's well in your vein because that's this is what you do, isn't it? You research yeah. drugs and you research technologies <laughs> yeah. and see what they are like. Yeah, so I, I mean, I didn't do as deep a dive as I would for like a class project or for like work, but it was really interesting to read that and it makes a lot of sense, right? Because this is just like a sheath of, um, it can be rubber. Nowadays, they're mostly like um, latex or some sort of like nitrile plastic. Um, but you can also get like lambskin ones and other ones if you have a latex allergy. Though it's important to note the lambskin and natural ones do not prevent um, STD or HIV transmission because they are partially permeable. Really? I didn't know that. Um, but they do prevent pregnancy. Or reduce the risk of pregnancy. And of course, having a physical barrier is the most. Is it the most effective way to stop? I'm asking you. Most effective way to stop pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy? It is the most effective way if done correctly. Okay. I think a lot of those statistics, if, you, if it's based on human error. Most okay. of those statistics. So, for example, condoms are 98% effective at, at preventing pregnancy and STI transmission if used correctly. In actual practice, it's something more like 75 to 80-something percent, depending on where you look. Because we're stupid and we use them wrong. Because people use them wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Um, but sort of the same thing like with birth control, which we'll dive into later, It's a lot of it is usage. A little bit more on the history of condoms, because I know you all want to know about this. Who doesn't have a good history of a condom? Apparently, condoms are first reported historically in the 15 and 1600s um, around syphilis outbreaks. Um they were used anything from intestines to linen sheets, which had been chemically treated and dried. In Japan, they used turtle shells. How? I'm not sure, I'm not sure but they did. And the first rubber condom that's sort of close to what we would recognize as a condom today was in the 1850s, shortly after Goodyear figured out how to make rubber. They very quickly found a way to turn that into a sex object. So good job, Goodyear. <laughs> and before we go really past this, I mean, the, the largest thing people would talk about is male condoms. Right. But there are also female condoms which get inserted into the vagina um, and you can actually put those in several hours ahead of time. So it's a good way to be preemptively prepared in case you're expecting intimacy and want to make sure that you're safe. Mm -hmm. There are also dental dams, which are sort of plastic sheets that can go over um, the anus or the vaginal opening. Vaginal opening? Yeah. <laughs> Technically sounds, what it's called. It sounds so like medical. It's so right. strange. Anyway. But basically there are different types of barriers. You can use gloves, for example. Yeah. And I one thing that um, stuck out to me when I was reading this was maybe not everyone uses sex toys that listen to this podcast. But if you do have any toys and you're using them multiple partners, um, putting a, a barrier around them, like a glove or a condom, is like the easiest way to make sure you can use it with multiple partners and obviously there is like a whole separate thing here it's like how do you use barriers when you're having sex with like lots of people at the same time like mm -hmm. when you're having group sex um 
you know, like basically it would mean that anyone who is receiving would would need to use a fendom or what are they called? Vaginal condom? Vaginal but condom. But you could use them. Can you use, I don't know actually. I don't know how well that would work with a tribe. I've never used one. Basically, I think the easiest way off the top of my head would be that everyone that's giving either with a toy or, or with whatever else would 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 don a barrier. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I will I will link to a podcast that speaks specifically about how to use barriers in group sex because we do have quite a lot to get through. Yeah. Um, so just to sort of wrap that up, I'm just going to sort of... There's a lot of barriers. You should practice using them. You should be responsible for your own. Don't expect somebody else to have them um, and know what your boundaries are about them. I think everything we go through here... We're going to, we should remind you that you have to have your own boundaries and make sure you stick to them and you make it possible. Or if it doesn't fit your boundaries, not to engage in an act. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add that they, this will like sound so technical and like so medical, but like barriers can be really fun. Like we have been to like that class, do you remember when we were in Amsterdam, we went to that class, it was about like using plastic wrap um, as like part of a, of a, like a play scene or something obviously do that with the correct like training and information available but like have fun with it they, they even say in here get place get playful spill some lube roll around in it invent creative ways to wrap body parts in plastic and then find out what new and interesting things you're feeling basically so even though barriers have been around for like ever to try and stop people from getting pregnant i feel like now we can like say like that there'll be there'll be somewhere near you maybe if you're in the states like that does, you know, latex wrapping class 101 or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, have fun with it. Like, it, just because it's a safer sex equipment doesn't mean it can't be, like, fun. Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, oh, condoms are, are awful. I hate them. And they don't have to be, right? Um, so practice, try different ones. My last shout out before we move on is a company called One Condoms. Are they even going to pay you for this shout out? Probably not. But I've shouted out pro bono because they deserve it. Oh, okay. Right. Tell me about, tell so, me about one condoms. So one condoms makes a variety of just generic condoms, but they also do my one condoms, which are sort of made to measure. They do something like 60 different measurements to accommodate all different penis sizes. Because having a condom that fits properly really changes the experience. Whether you're smaller or larger or thicker or longer or any combination, having a condom that fits on you properly makes a big difference. And they send you a measurement kit and you can do all that and then you order them and they're not actually any more expensive than off-the-shelf condoms so check those out they're awesome the last thing they have here going on clara saying have fun is practice oh and this is the exercise they give us right this so is the exercise this book they've been dossier has been and janet have been giving us homework so this is our this is more fun than the other homework this is very more practical um, <laughs> so it says if, if you have a penis and you don't like condoms, try masturbating with them and using them to get more comfortable with them. If you like to have sex with people with penises, buy some cheap condoms and practice putting them on. Practice, they say start with your hands on bananas, cucumbers, or dildos, and then try to make it sexy or do it with your mouth like in the movies or something. But instead of making it this like uh, annoying thing, like enjoy it, find ways to have fun with it. And think about ways to help continuing to prevent fluid transmission. Which I guess leads me on to my section, which they've called here is fluid bonding. So fluid bonding, um, sometimes called fluid monogamy, which is a 
apparently one of the things it's called. I'm not going to call it that. Um, it's when uh, they say here is the primary couple or group agrees that they are safe to play with each other without barriers. And so they will no longer be using, you know, all of the things that you've just told me about, Sebastian. So for people who are monogamous that li are listening, you probably have implicitly been fluid bond like you, there's been an implicit understanding of fluid bonding and i would encourage you to make that an explicit discussion the difference between having unprotected sex and being fluid bonded is an intentional discussion about it so i would i would encourage anyone who's monogamous is listening to to really grapple with the idea of like if you're going to be re removing ba um, barriers why is that because it, it could be because of an emotional reason it could be because you enjoy like a um, an extension of the intimacy and like an evidence of trust and, and that that is part of the sexual experiences you're having or it could be because you for example have a latex allergy or like for some reason like cannot or do not want to use barriers but it's definitely different than just having like implicit bonded <laughs> unprotected sex which can be potentially risky um Within the community, the, the term fluid bonding is used to suggest that you and maybe your partner or you and several partners have formed what's sometimes called a circle. So to get to that point, what you do is everyone tests into the circle. They wait six months because it's how long it takes for HIV antibodies to show up. And then once everyone knows their status, there is then a discussion about how to remove those barriers. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in that circle is healthy, which they say in this book, they say when everyone's healthy. I hate that term. You're not unhealthy if you are if you carry um, any kind of viruses or whatever it just means that you need to be aware of them and you can have that discussion with them we will get on to testing and stuff later in this chapter but that's that's the process of forming a fluid bonded circle but what i want to say is that within the community there's now been a lot of discussions about this term because it seems to give hierarchy to certain types of fluids and not others so there are plenty of fluids that you're going to share with someone you're becoming intimate with the first of which is saliva and we're obviously not talking about saliva when you're talking about fluid bonding. You're talking about ejaculant, vaginal fluids. But what about things like blood and saliva? Like if you're having like skin to skin contact can be enough to sometimes like transfer some. Again, we're going to get into the specifics of testing later. So I think that it's just really, I don't really like to use this term fluid bonding. I think it's just being intentional about removing barriers and negotiating that. And as I, I think that that's kind of, that, that to me would be the change I'd make to this chapter is I wouldn't call this fluid bonding, I would call this like intentional non-barrier use. That would be my preference. I think that's a really good, I think that's a much better way to, to call it because right. I also think when you talk about fluid bonding, like from everything that I've read, even when I talk to people about it or when I've like talked about protection and barriers with people, fluid bonding usually is very specifically vaginal fluid or ejaculate, male semen sperm mm -hmm. contacting each other. Right. It's not necessarily, for example, a lot of people don't consider fluid sharing through oral sex, yeah. right? So giving somebody oral, people might not be concerned about using a barrier, whereas penetrative sex, vaginal or anal, they would have a different. And so, yeah. Right, whereas when you're having a discussion to do that intentionally, then there's the question of like, well, why, why do I want to not use barriers with this person? And then there can be like implicit assumptions coming up. So for example, that I implicitly think that outer course or oral sex is less important in some way than intercourse in which case that might be interesting for you to examine because outer course and oral sex are completely valid forms of sex that require also discussions about how to do them safely and risk-free and i think making all of those discussions and we're going to talk about testing and a lot of stuff mm -hmm. but requires you to understand and be educated about 
STIs and STI transmission and HIV transmission and the risks of that with every type of sexual act you want to engage in. Because yeah. yes, they're different and that's why you can have different barriers for different things. But make that choice intentionally if you're going to choose to not use barriers for any act. Yeah, like I would just read directly from the book and then you can take over is they say here to reach such an agreement, everyone involved will have to do some homework on the risk levels of various activities and decide together what level of risk is acceptable to you. All right. Cool. And with that, we're going to move on to the next one, uh, which is talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis, which most people would know as PrEP, P, capital P, little R, capital E, capital P. Wait, I don't can know you why say little R again? Little R. That's just very cute in your accent. Um, so um. <laughs> pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, and I'm going to add a little bit more on here in, on post-exposure prophylaxis because they don't dive into it. This is specifically to do with HIV. And I, I do think a lot of our conversations and the shift culturally to being more open about talking about STDs has come from the AIDS epidemic in the 80s um, and making people really aware of the risks of this. PrEP is a drug that you can take every day. If you are engaging in sexual activities with somebody who is HIV positive or who may be if you're in a, a circle where you're concerned about that, it can also be used if you're using um, IV or injection drugs. But basically PrEP, helps your body not catch HIV. No, not catch it. Yep. <laughs> That's really specific. Well done. <laughs> it, so it, it basically reduces the risk of contracting HIV by 99%. So it's not perfect. Nothing is perfect. But if you take it every day consistently, it reduces the risk of con contracting HIV almost completely. So what's the difference between PrEP and PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, she asks in a pointed manner. <laughs> so PEP which they don't have in this book, which is surprising because based on the publication date, all of this was available for mm -hmm. the third edition. PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis, and it's a, a specialty cocktail of antiretrovirals that you take if you have been exposed to or may have been exposed to HIV. So that's typically if you have had sex with somebody who might be HIV positive and a barrier broke, or you found out afterwards that they were HIV positive, or for, for whatever reason, or through an injection. Um, another place that is used a lot is in hospitals, through like needle pokes and stuff. Mm -hmm. But basically, PEP is a drug that you take within 72 hours of being exposed or potentially being exposed to HIV. Uh, and you have to take it for 28 days. It's a pretty serious drug cocktail. And it's really only if you think you've been exposed. And it has a very high success rate in preventing you from contracting HIV. So if, if you were exposed, the chances of actually acquiring HIV and the HIV surviving in your body is drastically reduced. So it has a lot of side effects. It's definitely not it's great, but it's an emergency thing, right? right? Because it might suck, but it will be, you know, you don't want to get HIV through some accident or something else. They say here, we want to note that this is a relatively new medication, which I guess is still technically true. It's within about the last decade or so. I don't have the date off the top of my head, actually. I didn't find that. Mm. But it's worth noting that neither PEP nor PrEP will have any have nothing to do with other STIs, mm. STDs, or pregnancy. Yeah, specifically for HIV. But like I said, a lot of a lot of our discussions around STIs sort of stemmed from discussions around HIV specifically. They actually shout out the CDC at the beginning of this, but I'm going to link a few specific pages on the CDC website that talk about this um, for general information about PEP and PrEP. 
and how to use them. And now, having talked about that, our next section in here is about avoiding high-risk behavior. Another risk reduction strategy is simply to eliminate some forms of sexual expression from your repertoire, like avoiding certain sex acts, uh, they say, such as putting mouths or penises into or near anuses, because they feel that that is a particularly high-risk form, not worth the reward. Other people don't engage in any form of penetration with an organic penis. Organic penis. Yeah, they refer to it as an organic penis. That's, That's how they said way. it. It's a lovely way of referring to it, mm -hmm. but I can't help but think about Whole Foods. <laughs> That's where you get your organic penises. <laughs> That's where I get them, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, as anything, um, there's an old saying like abstinence is the only form of 100% safe sex is not having it. But my advice is not, and their advice also is not, to not have sex. It's to be as safe as you can and educated as you can about it. Every decision you make requires that you balance your own desires against your assessment of the risks. They had one other quote. One friend of ours points out that celibacy can be like dieting. I can be really good during the week, but then I binge on the weekends. And that's not a good strategy either because you're... Yeah, also dieting is not a good strategy. We are mm -hmm. a fat positive, um, fat loving, I mean, anti-diet culture, all of that shit. So I didn't like that they included that. But they mm -hmm. do give lots of further readings, which we will link, I think, probably yeah. the best thing to do, yeah. on how to have sex that doesn't involve squirting inside someone else for any yeah. reason. That's yeah. how they put it. Basically. So I, I think just summing up, like there are there are behaviors you can avoid or you can mitigate the risk of. Do that from an educated point and decide what risks you're okay with and avoid the risks that you're not okay with. Okay, so the next the next section is potentially, I guess, one of these deemed higher risk uh, potential situations. They don't say that here, but they talk about sex and drugs. So before I start going into this, I want to point out that um, the history of using sex and um, drugs together is like long like way before hashtag chemsex or the legalization of weed in the states um like there is evidence of romans egyptians lots of native indigenous communities uh prehistory communities people using various forms of like mind altering or like body stimulants um alongside sexual encounters so we obviously should talk about how to do that without putting yourself at extra like risk um, and that's not just of um like we're now kind of moving beyond talking about well i think we're, t we're going beyond talking about stis stds hiv and unwanted pregnancy we're now also talking about like how to keep your sex sort of like safe from like a mental standpoint as well Definitely. so so what they say here is um if you want to do a riskier than usual experience of stoned or drunk sex, so they are including alcohol as one of these drugs, remember to do your negotiations before the scene begins and with an understanding that there'll be no surprises or changes changes of agreements partway through. So at no point are you going to say like, hello, I've just done loads of ecstasy. Do you want to fuck? Like that's not, that would be like a really profoundly bad idea. Um, I kind of want to give a little bit more information on how to do that because I feel like they don't really give a step-by-step -step on how to do that. And now that we have, we'll, we'll definitely have listeners in the States who probably, you know, have access to legalized weed. So this is how I would go about having that discussion. Number one, you would navigate the scene beforehand. This is while everyone involved is sober, whether it's just you and a, one other partner or whether it's you and multiple partners. So you want to basically consent to the potential of sex and talk about when, where, who with. You want to, secondly, clearly state your personal limits and boundaries and triggers. So anything that you think might be triggering. 
Um, number three, as a group, you all agree to a trigger plan. So a trigger plan basically kicks in if, so, if something stops feeling good or somebody needs medical care. Um, you want to talk about um, what that person would need if they're triggered. You want to talk about whether they want to be touched or not. You want to talk about things that they're aware of that might make them feel safer or calm down. And obviously, if that happens, everything stops. So there is a clear understanding that if the trigger plan happens, everyone stops in any case of discomfort. And obviously, you should also be having regular water breaks where you can also do check-ins with the concern, stay hydrated. And I would really encourage anyone that wants to um, combine sex and drugs to only do so if they're familiar with both. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't let your first time be when you're super, super drunk or really, really high. Um, and don't let your first time on drugs be having sex. Um, that's kind of everything I want to say on that. And I think that they, they, they kind of say like they, neither of these authors particularly use drugs regularly. Um, they say we prefer the natural high of endorphins, oxytocin and other lovely Aww. chemicals. Um, but if the stuff needs to be swallowed, inhaled, smoked, whatever, then, you know, just do so with, with all of those steps in place. Um, they then kind of, do you have any questions about sex and drugs? Questions about it? Yeah, I was just thinking like, I managed to sort of race through that. No, I mean, I don't have questions about it. Uh, I have a couple of comments maybe. Yeah. I, I'm glad that they put it in there. And I agree that it's not just about now about health or about pregnancy. It's also about physical safety and emotional safety. Mm -hmm. And really reminding people, alcohol is a drug too. And I think a lot of people think of it differently. Yeah. And having a couple of drinks before you have sex, especially in a new environment or with somebody new. That is riskier than usual. It is riskier than usual, even if you're used to that. And so be able to be clear, you know, know yourself, know your limits and be safe. Okay, the next section that they talk about here is what they call finger crossing. And I think it doesn't really make sense in this part of the book. But basically they're saying like, the reality is that acting on desire without taking responsibility is not ethical, but we've kind of all done it um and it's just really reiterating that simply hoping for the best as a like as a point of course like denying that you're a risk or failing to keep your agreements this is not acceptable strategies for either birth control or disease prevention um and then saying like we we sometimes make that those mistakes sometimes we're not all perfect but the point is that you shouldn't be going into the to any situation be like oh let's hope it's fine and i'm sure that everyone listening to this including me <laughs> knows someone who like almost repeatedly just finger crosses and it's like dude or bro or human whatever <laughs> like it's not it's not ethical to yourself more than anything else obviously you're putting other people at risk but you're also the whole this whole section just doesn't feel like it needs to be in here or that it really adds anything to the information they're providing i don't know if you feel differently i think I mean, it just sort of seems out of place after everything we have talked about. I almost feel like it should have been the first thing. Oh, yeah. If they had put this as the first one, like, as a, this is not the way to do it. Like, some people do this and they just hope, you know, you figure because of who you are or who you're dating or where you live or whatever, it's not something that's going to affect you. And that's not good. So I, I think, I think it's important to say, like, this is not a good thing. I'm glad they put it in there. But I think it should have come right at the beginning before we start diving into specific examples into specific examples and how to be healthy but speaking of how to be healthy 
Segway. Segway. <laughs> Let's talk about testing and prevention. They say, we think it's essential for ethical sluts to be tested for HIV and other sexually transmitted on a regular schedule. But how frequently it depends on the risk factors in your life. And I, I think that's true. If you are in a long-term monogamous relationship and you both have been tested at the beginning of that, there is a, you know, you're not at risk really to introduce anything else if you are actually in a sexually monogamous relationship. Well, yeah, if you've tested the appropriate windows out. How frequently, like they said, how frequently depends on the risk factors in your life. Mm -hmm. um, the CDC recommends at least once a year for a sexually Once active... a year? Oh my God, that's terrible. I get tested way more than that. Right, so... I'm genuinely shocked that that is... Uh, you, you know what? This might just be because most testing and prevention materials are about... based on monoculture. Yeah, so... It says here, people who have multiple or anonymous partners should be tested more frequently for STDs, okay. three to six month intervals. Okay. Yeah, which that, I think is... I feel like that's safer. That's personally how often I get tested is every probably three to four months. Obviously, to any listener here, you need to go to your doctor, clinic, Planned Parenthood, whatever, and decide how often you want to get tested. We, we can only speak from our experience. But chlamydia, gonorrhea, they take two weeks to show up after potential exposure. Genital herpes takes three weeks to show up after potential exposure. HIV takes three weeks, um, but can be up to six months. Syphilis takes at least six weeks, three months, or, and then six months intervals. That's how often you want to get tested. And genital warts, basically the symptoms show up here. Um, that's all the information I have directly in front of me. That all sounds right. And some of them, like those are, those are estimates. HIV can be dormant for some amount of time before you can test it. Herpes can be dormant and you can't, there isn't a, a good blood test for it. Because even if you've been exposed but aren't currently carrying it, you will have antibodies. The only test that they have for that is if you actually have an active herpes sore and they test it. Mm -hmm. As two good examples. So getting regularly tested and also visual, like keeping an eye on your health. Yeah, literally yeah. an eye. Literally, like Impressive. check it out, make sure everything looks okay every <laughs> once in a while. If something looks strange, get it checked out. Yeah. Better safe than sorry. But I w having said that, I wouldn't wait until you're symptomatic because a lot of things are asymptomatic. Um, and it's also worth noting that most average tests, like there's a whole bunch of stuff they don't test for in those things. Yeah. Like you cannot, like obviously you've already mentioned herpes, but like HPV is another one that you would only know if you went in and got a swab. There's no test for it for guys. So they, I think they give a really short part of testing prevention here. But yeah. I think that's because... There's, there's like so much that you should go to your medical provider. Yeah, and we're not medical providers. So the last thing I want to say is, um, and this may be tricky for some people, but I'm going to share. I'm going to share a personal anecdote really quick about a nice story that I had. Um, so I recently went to get a physical because I was due for a physical. I was talking. It was a new doctor that I'd never worked with before, but was super nice. Um, and I had recently been tested actually before going in because I was because health because health because i make sure to do that regularly especially when i'm planning to introduce new partners so that i know that i have current tests to share with people and i started talking to this doctor and you know one thing you have to think about is doctors often are assuming monogamy because that's the cultural script but i brought it up with this with this doctor i said you know i have this partner we're polyamorous like i have these other partners i have he's like are you active with men or women and it was not everybody's going to have that experience i like left this appointment smiling and I actually, I texted, me about I it. called Claire, I called another partner about it. And I was like, this is great. I was like, this is amazing. Cause like we, we skipped past all the, like, I have to explain what polyamory is. I have to explain how my relationships are structured. Yeah. And we just, he was like, okay, so you were definitely good to be getting tested every three months. This is something else that, you know, these are other things that you can do. You know, he asked if I was disclosing to everybody, like, like my sexual activities and stuff. And we were able to have a really good and honest discussion. 
And I know that that's not going to happen for everybody. But I certainly didn't expect it walking into that appointment that I was going to have such a lovely and open conversation. Um, so if you can, try to find Yeah, I'm sure a for, provider. for every provider that was great like yours. There I are mean, plenty I who are have, not. I have so many bad stories about yeah. my doctor just being kind of outright rude. Mm-hmm. Like once I was in... Um, we're about to go into birth control, so this would be my segue. But once I went in to speak to about about contraception to my doctor, and she asked me about my current relationship, and at the time I was only in a relationship with a person with a vulva, so she was like, the doctor was like, "Oh, you don't need contraception then," and I was like, "Okay, but I'm bi or pansexual, so in the future or tomorrow, like at any point, it's my decision." Um, so. Yeah, I, I wish everyone had the experience you had with your provider. That's really great. So I guess just to, to wrap that up, is if you can't have, wrap it up. Eh, it's fun. <laughs> um, but be as honest with your doctor as you can, or at least make decisions. If you don't have a doctor that you can have that conversation with. Go to Planned Parenthood. Go to Planned ah. Parenthood. They're usually much more understanding. Find ways to make sure that you're taking care of your health the way that you need to, not the way that society or some old white man in a white coat is going to tell you how to. Okay, I'm going to talk about birth control, and before I talk about this, I want to say that since people have been having sex, we've been trying to do it without babies. I'm passing no judgment on how you family plan or whatever. In this book, they basically say that birth control technology is far from perfect. A reliable, reversible, easy, and side-effect-free contraception is still a dream, and unwanted pregnancies need no longer be life-shattering tragedies of yesteryear, but they can still be really awful, and we hope that no one ever has to have one. Strong words, Dossie and Janet. Um, so, basically, if you have ovaries and a uterus and you're having intercourse with someone with, testic- with testicles and either of you are fertile, you must take active steps to ensure that you won't get pregnant until or unless you choose to. So let's talk about how you can do that. There are many ways that you can protect yourself from unwanted pregnancy these into these include the birth control implant a patch a birth control pill a shot a sponge a vaginal ring a cervical cap a diaphragm we've already spoken about condoms and also female condoms fertility awareness methods which i'll come back to iud's which is interuterine devices spermicide Male sterilization or vasectomies, sterilization such as tubal li- li- ligation. Thank you, you can't say it. Um, so those are just some ways that that you can uh, that you can manage your your very fertile ovaries. And you will notice that most of those, it's about the people with the ovaries and a lot of people with the testes. So hormonal birth control was introduced into the nineteen sixties, and we really haven't gone any further with it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've seen recent studies that's very well known that hormonal birth control for women increase for people with ovaries, sorry, in, elevates the risk of depression. They have huge side effects, including lots of physical and emotional um, side effects. They've got me- mood disorders. These were all reasons why male hormonal birth control was halted. Ah, oh, patriarchy. How dare you? <laughs> it's also worth noting that sterilization, like, voluntarily sterilizing myself for example wouldn't be provided for me because I um, even though I know I don't want to have children let's say and I went in and I asked they would say well your future husband might want a kid and you're under the age of 30 so we're not going to tie your tubes for you 
Ah, uh, patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Um, Whereas I'm pretty sure if I went to go get a vasectomy, they would totally let me do it. Yeah, and they even say in here, testicle owners having intercourse with uter uterus owners. The choices are quite limited, but if you know that you don't want to have children in the future, a vasectomy is a very minor surgery. I think it's even an outpatient surgery. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to talk about um, used condoms. Um, and you can also lobby for better research for male contraception and i would just shout out my personal use uh which is the only non-hormonal birth control method um that is reversible which is the copper interuterine device um i can only speak from my personal experience it is long acting it is reversible and it doesn't involve any external like any new hormones being introduced to in my body so uh, i like it i have lots of women and also uterus carrying friends who like it and um yeah if you go and speak to your provider and or your nearest Planned Parenthood they can provide you with lots of lovely information about that um did you want to say anything about that before I talk briefly about what they say on abortions um what was I going to say about that? there's something I want to say I have a lot of thoughts on this um mostly because my mom is a midwife so I, I hear a lot about this stuff yeah so I think the one other thing, yeah, it is it is very frustrating that a lot of these are targeted at women and they have lots of weird side effects. The flip side is there are a lot of other good reasons for some people to take hormonal hormonal birth controls. Definitely. Um, and I know people who have who have gone to get birth control for other reasons than pregnancy prevention because they have very strong cycles or they have really big hormonal imbalances through their cycle, and this helps to level it out. So work with your doctor on that. I'm not a medical professional. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of good reasons to do that and to find the right fit and the right solution for you. The one other thing I would say is definitely these are all targeted at women. Um, and it does actually, there was a, I read uterus a historical owners. uterus owners. Yes. Yeah. Um, people who have the potential to carry a child within the body yeah. place. Yeah. Um, and even historically, the prevention of pregnancy was, has always been on uterus owners talked about even in ancient egypt women would put crocodile dung in inside really? themselves to prevent it i really it. didn't know that that is that is um, so interesting and other things like that right but i do think the one thing to say about that is while that's a bit unfair it is also because the larger burden of becoming pregnant could fall on that uterus owner yeah. so be proactive in making the choice for yourself and don't rely on somebody else to do it. So let's talk about if you did get pregnant unintentionally. And this is when I'm going to go back to fertility awareness methods, even though they don't talk about it in the book. What they say in this book is that obviously becoming pregnant unintentionally can be a little bit difficult. If everyone involved agrees that an abortion is the best choice, it can be still kind of potentially unpleasant. Although it's worth noting that one in four uterus owners have an abortion and it's fun. It's not like every single one of those abortions was like super emotionally traumatic, really, really difficult. Um, early time abortions are, um, like I would say not, not as, uh, traumatic as they used to be back when it was like illegal in many places, but let's move on. The final decision, what, this is the authors again the final decision has to be has to belong to the person with the fetus inside and we sympathize deeply with the person who would like to raise a baby but whose partner isn't willing or able to carry it and i echo that sentiment pretty much um i want to talk about the 
fertility awareness methods this is a great method of birth control if you're trying to family plan if it's done in an informed way so we're talking about tracking cycles having um penetrative sex only during the windows of ovulation for example if you wanted to get pregnant um or not doing that during that period if you're trying not to get pregnant but again, you're assuming a lot of responsibility. You need to make sure that you're super informed. And again, go and speak to your physician about it. And I'm going to point out that even with perfect planning, that's not a perfect method. Oh, God. Even if you did all of these methods, something Nothing. could go wrong. Yeah. Um, I just remember there was one other thing I wanted to shout out that I should have said before, uh-huh. uh, which is plan B, which they don't they talk, about, talk about either. talk about that in here. So plan B is basically if you have... Usually, it's most common, I think, if, like, for example, if a condom breaks or some sort of accident happens, it's an emergency contraceptive. It's basically a super high dose of birth control. Yeah, um, which means that the egg will not implant. Right, which prevents implantation of the egg. So that if you had a, an accidental exposure to sperm... Yeah, let's say you got your dates wrong on your family yeah. awareness method or if you forgot to take your contraception for any reason, if a condom breaks... Right. Or if you crossed your fingers and, or if you decided to have a risky night and then we're like, oh, oops. right, you went out and you were drunk and you had a good time and you woke up and you're like, crap, I should have done that. Although I will say that as someone has taken that, it's again, kind of hard on the body. Yeah. I found it really, really tough. Yeah. I will not be doing that again. And that's when I got the IUD, personal right. stories. Yeah. Okay. That very final section is committing to healthy sex. And I have some stuff to say on this before we dive into what they say. Okay. Um, I did an interview with normalizing non-monogamy and I, I said this there, but I think it's worth repeating, um, that any discussion about safer sex requires three things. It requires an element of trust in the other person, person or persons. It requires a certain amount of access to both contraception and contraceptive education. And it also provides but it also assumes an egalitarian honesty. So the ability to actually sit down with your partner and have these discussions is already based on a whole bunch of social and economic like privileges. Um, and you may find yourself having those discussions and falling into the role of an educator and having to do a lot of educational and emotional labor for a partner who is less confident or less comfortable with having those discussions. Everything that they discuss in this chapter is super um like heteronormative almost uh american style information um if you are having a relationship that's not in those contexts there's going to be a whole bunch of extra things so for example access to contraception education or to contraception may be much less than what they're assuming in this book um barriers to having an egalitarian honest discussion with the partners involved might also be uh, they've assumed that here, but might might also be like risky or very very difficult. Um, but basically, and also I want to just point out that it will always come down to trust. The best laid plans still require you to put a level of trust in your partners, um, and that's that's kind of the beauty almost of sex. It's kind of the nice part as well as the risky part. That's uh, that's what I have to say on that. What do you think about committing to healthy sex? Um, what do you think about the term healthy in that situation? I'm not sure I like it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, all of these words, they have a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say stigma associated with them, but like no, healthy versus... No, I think you versus, could say stigma. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> healthy, healthy versus unhealthy. Um, you know, a lot of like STIs, like people associate having an STI with being dirty or having a problem or being sick or unwell. 
Whereas if you think if somebody has a cold or the flu or any number of other conditions, you wouldn't think of them as a bad person, but in a sexual context. Yeah, let's talk about stigma a little bit more because they don't talk about stigma in this entire chapter and I okay. think it's like a huge oversight. I mean, stigma is this great big um, social construct, mm-hmm. right? And it makes it really hard to engage in both these practices that they're talking about, but also these discussions. And they don't talk about it at all in this chapter. And I think that's a really huge oversight. I, w- I wish, it, I mean, even, even stigmas attached to, for example, navigating condom use is something that like, I guess I have a lot to say on because it depends which society you're in. Sometimes if you're asking someone to use a condom, you're basically admitting that you're not being faithful yeah. and therefore that you cannot be trusted and that you like especially for example we've both been in malawi this is a very strong stigma there if you're asking for condom use it's because you yourself have uh, are having sex with multiple partners and are therefore bad um that's obviously not how the u.s thinks about condom use the stigma is different and the stigma is real and it affects the way that people make these decisions and why they make these decisions and it's completely ignored in this part of the book yeah yeah i think it just i mean there's still a lot there is a lot of stigma associated with anything with discussing this and i i think from this section you know committing to healthy sex i don't love the title but i i agree with the sentiment and the idea that they're trying to get across okay why don't you tell us about the idea they're trying to get across which is that you have to take ownership of your sexual health you have to make choices you have to do your homework you need to know about the risks and rewards and you need to choose to do the work of saying no to sex that doesn't meet those safety criteria or to, you know, make changes to those plans. You need to approach sexual behaviors in a mature, realistic, and sober manner. And I agree with all of that, right? When they're, I, I don't agree with the use of the word healthy. And I think maybe what I would title this is committing to informed sex or making informed choices about sex, right? Which is what we've been talking about the whole time is that none of these methods are 100% successful they're not 100% safe, they're not 100% effective, and even condoms, which can be almost 100% effective, very rarely are because we're human. And, and we're humans, stupid. And we're stupid. <laughs> and accidents happen and, you know, things happen. So okay, the most I, important... I agree with the sentiment that they're trying to put across, but I just really wish that they'd had more on that, more on, like, you know, the, the best laid plans go awry. And that's like doesn't mean that you become like this terrible person. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. And then the way that they end this, which I I really appreciate, is that some of this stuff is hard to talk about. The first couple of times, whether it's the first time you have sex, or maybe you've gone through the beginning of your life not really having these conversations, whether it's because you're monogamous and following those cultural scripts, or whether because you were embarrassed, or that's just not how you were choosing to make those decisions. And having those discussions can be hard, and it can be difficult, and in the moment, it's not, they say here, it's depressing and scary, definitely not erotic, and sometimes horrendously embarrassing. What? And I take, I take offense to that. I do too. Like, okay, for me personally, every discussion I've had about my sexual health has been a component of a very intimate discussion that's led me to like that person more. Right. Like, every single time. I can't remember, like, a single conversation where, like, yeah, obviously at the beginning it might be a little bit awkward for the other person, but I guess I've just done it so often. I'm just like, mm. you know what? The first couple of times might have been hard. I don't even remember that now. Now I'm actually looking forward to having this discussion. Mm. I want to get like, I want to talk about it. I want it to be like part of 
the process of like getting to know someone and i think it's kind of it's kind of sexy i agree i think when you remove the stigmas that get associated with it and you just this is part of making a healthy informed decision about having sex with someone it's just part of the process i don't find it to be not erotic at all i find it to be is great pillow talk i mean at that point like you're sitting you're talking you're like hey look this is where we're at let's have this discussion and be responsible adults and this is what we both want to do mm. um and they then later on they say chatting about the fun stuff is a turn-on and the best way to exa get exactly what you want and if you start talking about this from a form of what are we what are we getting into bed for today right like mm -hmm. Like, what are we getting into and talking about? And it's not just, let's use a condom, let's do this, let's do that, but part of a bigger discussion about the intimacy that you want to have. Yeah. Which toys do you want to use? Let me go and get the appropriate barriers. Ooh. Right. You know, yeah. I want I want to do this and this and this. Bounty. Yay. Wow, wow. Okay, let's do this to be safe. Like, Does I find that to be really good, and I find it to be a big turn-on when somebody initiates that conversation, and I don't have to. I said this in another episode. If you can't have discussions about sex, and I'm a firm believer that if you can't have fun with sex and laugh during it and be silly and goof around and like, then what's like, that's half of the fun. Like, enjoy it. It's It should be this fun, enjoyable activity that's fluid and evolves together. I, I, I'm just smiling. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So go. So, oh, and support your local Planned Parenthood. Cool. Yeah. Go, go to Planned Parenthood. They're awesome. <laughs> go out. And fuck, do it in an informed and, and speak about it. Kids. And speak about it. Bye. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.